If there's ever a time where we needed to pull together as believers of Christ and, and unite and try to strengthen and make the world a better place, it's now. Mm-hmm. And that, that sounds like he's yeah. preaching our message. <laughs> there's one body, one church, one spirit, one hope. The realities of the faith, the ra- realities that unify us are already there. Christ praying for unity. What should we be praying for? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the one prayer request of Jesus. Think about it in the Bible that we actually have a say in whether or not it comes to fruition or not. I think in what God has done in you guys in uh, in this podcast and the, the multitude of folks that you're reaching, the diversity, whatever God intended when he's, when you started this, he's able to bring it to completion. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Whole Church Podcast with a dog. If you're watching on YouTube, you're welcome. Uh, if you're listening to the audio, I, I really don't know what he's going to do, and I apologize in advance. Um, haven't quite figured out the recording situation with this little guy yet. His name's Copper. Um, <laughs> so that being said, uh, first things first, I have to introduce our prestigious co-host, TJ Tiberius on Blackwell. Hello. And um, a very special guest again, we have Dr. John Soden this time, um, who's the co-author of In the Beginning, We Misunderstood. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to be here. Oh, yeah. Awesome. We're very glad to have you. Um, before we do anything else, again, always thank you to all of our patrons. You guys out there, keep the show going, and we love you guys a lot, um, especially because a lot of you are our family. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, so today we're going to be talking about, um, it's not a new book, uh, but he co-authored with Dr. John Miller, the book in the beginning, we misunderstood. Um, you guys should recall a couple of weeks ago, we talked to Dr. Beck and Dr. Link and, um, they gave one perspective of the creation account. We're going to hear kind of a different perspective today and still look at how we can have unity in that. And, um, it's a challenging topic for that. Uh, but of course, um, to review our audience engagement, I'm kind of disappointed in our audience, DJ. Mm. Um, for Monday, Monday, we asked you guys fruits or veggies. And I certainly understand both choices. What I don't understand is it ended up being 25 people for fruit and four for veggies. And that's a, our Instagram and Facebook just kind of a little bit combined. And um, guys, I, I think y'all are misappreciating veggies. That's all. Hmm. Um, so for today's silly question, we always have to start off with something silly because um best thing for unity sometimes is just to get rid of the tension. Um and we had to had to edit this one a little bit. Uh Dr. Soden has never seen Monsters Inc. So instead, I'm gonna ask. Uh and, and we'll answer first, give you time to think about it. If you could choose uh any pair of cartoon characters to go hiking with, which pair would you choose? And my answer is Mike and Soli. All right, TJ. <laughs> uh, so do the pair, do they have to be a pair in their respective show? Nah, nah, get creative. This will be fun. Okay, I'm not going to get creative, but I just wanted to make that clear. Uh, yeah, I would choose uh, Goku and Vegeta from Dragon Ball Z. I don't know if uh, anyone listening has ever seen it or if either of you have ever seen it, but just two really strong dudes and it would turn into some form of physical competition and it would be really entertaining to watch, uh, not participate in. I would lose handily. Yeah. I was thinking more, you were just thinking a lot more practical than me. You went with strong characters. I went with, oh, they'd probably be funny. Uh, Sully's a strong character. I... That's true. We would never have to carry a bag. 
Yeah. Um, Dr. Soden, uh, any two cartoon characters to go on a hike with, who would you choose? On a hike? <clears throat> I would probably choose, uh, uh, might be interesting and definitely shows my my age, but uh, Bugs Bunny and Roadrunner. Mm. That, that sounds fun. That sounds good. Yeah, I, I love Bugs. So yeah. they don't go together, but they go together. Right. Yeah. Yeah, uh, HBO Max, I think, just rebooted Looney Tunes. I don't know if either of you have nice. watched it yet, but I've heard it's not as good, which is not surprising to me. Mm-hmm. Looney Tunes is an absolute classic. Hard to top. Yeah. I didn't watch it because I hear a lot of the parts of it have been canceled and that has made mm-hmm. it worse. And I was like, ah, I just don't feel like dealing with that. Uh, but to get onto the, the real show, the reason I'm sure most of you listen uh, one thing we believe is extremely useful for church unity is to hear one another's stories, one another's testimonies. Uh, could you give us a quick rundown of yours? Sure. So I grew up in a pastor's family uh, in Oregon and trusted the Lord at an early age. But in junior high, I questioned what that meant. I didn't really understand salvation well and so went through a time of uh, trying to figure that out not rebellion as much as questioning and understanding and uh, through that it was uh, a process of recognizing God's grace in my life and understanding the security he offers so um, I went to Biola University after high school I was uh, interested in math and science, but I felt like God had a real tug on my heart for ministry of some sort. So I majored in math and science and uh, kept the options open for ministry. Ended up at Dallas Seminary, and it was a great experience for me. Actually, Biola was good. Um, Dallas was good. A lot of questions, and I, I... was just uh, talking with folks uh, recently about Ecclesiastes, and one of the things that that I recognized in academia is that uh, the more questions I answered, it's kind of like rabbits. They seem to generate more questions. So if I answered one, I get six <laughs> more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> so in the process of getting my master's at Dallas, um, I was encouraged to to consider teaching. And I decided, I realized that if I was going to teach, I would need a doctorate. So I, I decided to stay on there uh, for my PhD. And Old Testament was a natural choice for me because actually at the moment, I felt less equipped with the Old Testament than with the New Testament. And uh, even after majoring in Old Testament, I felt like my Greek was probably still better than my Hebrew. So it was... Uh, mm-hmm. It was a it was a good opportunity for me, and I really enjoyed it. So then we went into uh, didn't find a teaching position out of out of the doctorate. So I took a little church in Southwest Colorado and loved it uh, completely. It was it was a great place for us. We were there for almost ten years, and we loved it truly. Had a great group of people, and it grew a lot. It was a tremendous part of the country. And then, as I've often stated with a lot of truth in it, God drug us kicking and screaming all the way across the Great Plains to teach at Lancaster Bible College in Lancaster, 
Pennsylvania, which is also now Capital Seminary. And uh, that's what I do for the last 23 years, 24 years. Goodness, I don't know, somewhere right. in there. It's uh, well, it's crazy good. how often that ministry isn't someone's first choice when you start hearing people's testimonies. So, yeah, God yeah. kind of had to force me to do it. <laughs> it's it's just yeah. a lot more common than people think. Yeah. Yeah. He uh, has plans. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, just, just a fun fact. Uh, I live in Lancaster, South Carolina, uh, and I constantly get told that this is Lancaster and the other one is Lancaster because I always call it Lancaster. And it just does me, does me a little good to know that, that you guys don't actually call it that either, and, it, and it's pretty much just me. When I came to uh, to interview for the job, the very first thing the person taking me from the airport told me was, don't call it Lancaster because that's not what it is here. Here it's Lancaster. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. Everywhere so, so no it's one calls it Lancaster. Yeah. 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 We all just think the other places call it Lancaster. Yeah. <laughs> Funny. Um, no, you you kind of already answered my next question. Um, but you know, a lot of people think of physical science and some of the math and science stuff that you did as almost contrary to Old Testament, especially when we're thinking about Genesis that we're talking about today. Um, how how have you managed to? I don't know. How have you managed to kind of balance those two in your life, the two passions like that? Um, well, that's a great question because obviously in Genesis there is connection, um, and yet it's not the kind of connection that we often think of. Uh, I was simply fascinated by God's natural revelation and just wondering how it all worked together. And I've always loved the sciences and, and math was something that I enjoyed. Um, I did physical science that actually at Biola at the time was really sort of, it was a combination physics and chemistry degree. We did very little um, biology and we really didn't do any earth sciences. Uh, it was the uh, physics and chemistry was pretty much the, the extent of it. Uh, I think it was probably done as a pre-med degree, but um, we, I had a long conversation with my dad when I went to college because uh, he was a pastor and he, he told me that history would be a better fit with seminary. And I told him, um, I understood that and I appreciated that, but my interest was really not in history at the moment, which is ironic because I do, I have been doing a lot of history and I love it. But uh, anyway. <laughs> um, the, the motivation for me was twofold. One of them was that I would, um, enjoy it. But the other motivation honestly was that it would give me for wherever God put me into ministry, it would give me another very different way of connecting with people and understanding their worlds and seeing maybe from a different perspective rather than just from uh, a biblical or historical perspective. So for me, it was, uh, it, it had, it killed several birds, I suppose, with the, uh, the <laughs> same proverbial stone. So, huh. and, uh, probably the biggest one was that it was something that I really enjoyed a lot. And I didn't think I was going to enjoy history that much. Right. Yeah. Which for the book, uh, for in the beginning, we misunderstood the book you did with uh, Dr. Miller. We're going to talk about there's a ton of history. And so that's pretty interesting, actually. <laughs> Right. Uh, so you mentioned yep. you had the a ten year stint with the church in Colorado. Uh, what can you tell us about that church and your ministry there? What was that like? 
So it was a small church, little country church. Um, it was it was near a town. It was eight miles out of town. The town was only seven thousand people. Cortez, Colorado, southwest corner, and uh, it was up on the highway. So it was very rural. The whole county was only like twenty three thousand people at the time. I have no idea what it is now, but uh, probably not much different. Uh, we loved it. it. We loved the country. We loved the people. Um, it was, I was it. So I did everything um, from youth ministry to uh, camps to um, just preaching every Sunday and, and doing Bible studies and, you know, speaking, I don't know, four or five, six times a week. Mm. Um, so it was, it was, uh, it was busy. It was good. We were starting a family. Um, great, great set of people, but also just really a fun place to live. So the ministry was 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 exciting for me. It was fun to see people coming to know the, the Lord and um, growing in their faith and being able to connect with them from from birth to death and everything in between. So. So it was a typical small country church, but uh, we really thrived there for the time we were there. Dr. Soden, the one man band. It was pretty much that. 10 years is, 10 years is no short amount of time. Like yeah. I, I was reading your bio and it, it almost, um, I think it's for the school, but it, it, it almost read as like a, like a one or two sentence thing. And I was like, wait, that's, that's a huge part of someone's life. It was. Yeah. Big you impact. Uh, so how exactly did you end up teaching at Lancaster Bible College? Well, it's a long story we don't have time for. Uh, obviously, I had prepared for the possibility of teaching. And after seven or eight years in the pastorate, I was wondering um, if God was going to use that or what that would mean. And I wasn't looking to leave the pastorate. In fact, I had a couple of different um, opportunities that would call and I would say, no, I don't really think we're ready to leave. We can leave. I felt like the church was not quite ready for me to leave. And I went home and told my wife about it, the one in particular. And she said, well, don't you think you ought to pray about that first? I said, yeah, I probably should. So we started praying. And uh, through a variety of circumstances, um, I had a friend who was teaching it here at Lancaster Bible College at the time. I asked him if he liked teaching and he loved it, but he happened to be leaving Lancaster for another teaching position. He said I needed to get my resume there. So I did. They asked me to come and I, uh, I came out and interviewed and they asked me to stay. And I told them I, I need a week to pray about this. <laughs> so I went home and prayed some more. And finally I said, you know, I, I don't think I can say no, but I'm not sure I want to say yes. And, and we felt like this was really what God had for us. And it has been, and it's been great, but it was a really challenging transition for us. So huh. we just had really deep roots in Colorado. So it was, uh, it, it was a great opportunity and, and it has been a lot of fun and God has grown us tremendously through it. But uh, we just have a lot of fond memories and realize that um, sometimes the choice isn't between good and bad, but it's uh, it's it's good and and better. And right. what is the best for the kingdom? So that's why we're here. Yeah, I always uh, I tend to consider that like the sign that I need to do what I'm thinking about. If someone else tells me I need to pray about it, like to me, that's <laughs> like, Oh, okay. It's so I'm doing it. Then that's a, great. <laughs> uh, 
So you co-authored in the beginning, We Misunderstood with uh, Dr. Johnny Snowden, Johnny Miller. I don't know why I'm thinking Snowden, uh, but uh, whose idea was it to start the project and uh, what was the initial inspiration for it? Well, actually, the initial inspiration was a friend of ours, uh, Michael Murray, who's uh, written a number of things himself. Uh, he actually approached us and asked us if we would consider it. And ironically, the reason he asked us if we would consider it is because of the very topic you're talking about today. And that is how can we promote um, peace and good conversation within the church around this topic? So we talked about it and we prayed about it and uh, we decided to do it. Um, I went out looking and Kriegel ended up publishing it for us. And here we are. Awesome. Uh, so could you give us a, a quick summary of the book so our readers know exactly what we're talking about? A quick summary. Well, sure. you know, quick, quick is a relative term. Okay. So our goal for the book was initially a little different than where we ended up. Uh, we wanted to present what we believed that not just a position on Genesis 1, but we wanted to present um, what we see as um, a necessary understanding of how to approach Genesis 1. And that is that if we are looking at the original intent, the authorial intent, and by that I mean what does God intend to communicate and what does uh, Moses intend to communicate so that we have both the big A and little a author, and they are writing to a particular audience at a particular time. We need to understand it through their eyes. And as we looked at Genesis 1, uh, neither one of us are convinced or were convinced that it required a particular age of the earth answer to how you approached it. And that many thoughtful, godly evangelicals who held strongly to both the authority and inspiration of scripture um, held very different positions on how Genesis 1 should be understood. Um, as we worked on it and as we um, put together the book, we came up, we, we realized that we needed to present um, our conclusions as well on how Genesis 1 should be understood and that that would be probably the best way for us to go forward. So so I did. We did. Um, we wrote some background information on context and on how we need to approach it. And then I um, did more of the Johnny is more of a and it is Johnny Miller, by the way, which is unusual, but that's actually his given name. Um, but Johnny is more of a theologian and I have more of the Old Testament background store stuff. So. Uh, we were, we did, we definitely worked together and uh, he did as much as I, but uh, um, the people who know us would tell me that uh, they can tell who wrote which chapter, even though we both edited both of them. So it is <laughs> interesting. Uh, but anyway, that being said, the book itself then walks through how to think through the context. And particularly I look at we looked at the Egyptian context, Mesopotamian context, a little bit of Canaanite context, as much as, as we could find, and showed the connections and the similarities and differences between Genesis 1 and 
creation accounts in Mesopotamia, Egypt, and Canaan. The reason that's important is because there are a number of very interesting questions that Genesis 1 leaves us with, questions that do not fit our our world picture, the way we understand our world. They don't fit our, fit our science. And how do we how do we understand those? And so that's been a challenge for centuries. Uh, but as you look at the way their world was understood in Egypt, Mesopotamia, really across the whole Levant, um, there, there's a very similar understanding in terms of cosmic geography and what's going on. And there's a similar understanding in terms of um, what they would have said if you had asked them how the world was created. And what we presented is that um, the Genesis 1 account is using their language to describe creation, but it is teaching a very radically different theology of who God is. And so the language is very familiar to them and the concepts are very familiar to them. And the, uh, and yet the idea of who God is, who they are and how they should respond to God and what that means for their perspective on life and uh, future, um, is just radically different. So Genesis one becomes very much a polemic for a different worldview. Um, and so the book is trying to present how we came to our conclusions, but also what the impact of that would have been for the nation of Israel coming out of Egypt, because I think that context is crucial for what uh, is going on in Genesis and what Moses is doing, not just Genesis one, but really all of it. Um, but Genesis one is, is just huge for the worldview that he is developing for the nation because their perspective has been skewed by 400 years of, of um, being inculcated into Egyptian thought. Which uh, sort of leads us to the next question. Um, I, I heard of the Mesopotamian myths and some of those things. Um, you want to correct it, DJ? Mesopotamia. I see it on your face. Thank you. Um, I'm bad with words, y'all. I, I do like I do a lot of reading and very little talking to other people, and uh, sometimes that messes me up. Um, but yeah, I, I heard some of those other myths. In fact, we've talked about some of the other ones in some of our previous episodes and I'll drop uh, a link to those in the show notes. So if people want to see us where we dove in a little bit deeper in some of those, they can. Um, what we haven't talked about on the show before and something I've, my first encounter of it was with your books was the influence from Egyptian myths on the Genesis story. Um, could you tell our audience some about that? Sure. So the reason, uh, let me back up just a little bit. Uh, people would wonder, I suppose, did this, did the Egyptian mythology, did the Egyptian religion, did the Egyptian um, worldview and understanding really impact Israel? And I, I think the obvious answer is, uh, how could it not? Um, if they're swimming in the stream for 400 years, they're going to they're going to be absorbing and drinking some of the water. However. We see it in scripture as well. So in Joshua 24, for example, they're still carrying around the gods of Egypt. We see evidence of that all the way through. They're making golden calves, right? Um, e um, Ezekiel castigates them for absorbing the god, 
the worship of Egypt and the gods of Egypt and still carrying them for a long time. So we have some biblical evidence as well. Uh, but as you read Genesis 1, the impact from the Egyptian perspective on creation is just unmistakable. Uh, there's a number of scholars who have written on this uh, in articles, uh, some in some books that probably nobody will ever read outside of uh, scholars. But uh, but it is still unmistakable to see terminology that shows up, to see concepts that show up. And uh, the, the difficulty we have, let me back up just a little bit. One of the difficulties we have is that in Egypt, there isn't a strong single or even multiple um, story of creation. So the Memphite theology is the best we have, and it gives us some, gives us a, a pretty good idea. Uh, but creation is strewn throughout Egyptian writings. And so there are many, many references to it from the coffin texts and the pyramid texts and so on. So there's lots of smaller references. So putting it together into a coherent whole is a little bit of a challenge. Several scholars have attempted it, and, and I think have done a good job. And pretty much all of the Egyptologists that I know, at least, and that I've read, have agreed that the, the accounts are, are very similar as we go across the board, even over long periods of time. It, they change the names of the gods to uh, protect the innocent, perhaps, or at least to... Um, to exalt the particular gods that they want to exalt. But that being said, uh, what I discovered and what I presented is that the Egyptian accounts um, deal with many of the very same questions that we have from Genesis 1. And so the connections become really important for trying to understand how they would have heard Genesis 1 and what that means. For example, you have light created in day one, and you have the day, days, sun, moon, and stars at least created in day four. So, and yet you have days going along without sun, moon, and stars. How does that work? Um, and yet in Egyptian, in the Egyptian mindset and in Mesopotamia as well, um, light and the sun are not necessarily connected. You have light without the sun and you have light created first and you have the, the, uh, luminaries created later. So uh, what's very interesting then in comparing Egyptian, the Egyptian creation accounts with scripture is you have the same order of events and you have really the same issues and it fits their world perspective, but it doesn't really fit ours as well. And there's a, there's a lot of questions uh, that Genesis 1 raises that, that just really helps us understand, but that also raises questions too. So, um, uh, why does the earth start? Why does creation account in Genesis 1 2 start with formless, void, darkness, and deep? Is sort of the four qualities of creation from which God is going to bring his creation out. And um, so, we have Egyptologists who have shown that those same four ideas are, are basic to the very beginning of creation in Egypt as well. So, those sorts of things, those sorts of connections, um, I'm not sure if that's all that you want from your question, but uh, those are some of the ways that it takes me as I think about the connection between the Egyptian myths and the biblical account. 
Hey everyone, we just want to take a quick break to let you know all the many ways that you could support the Whole Church Podcast. Hey, on- hey Josh, that's going to take too long. Uh, okay, well, could you list all the ways that you can think of for mm-hmm. them to support us in 10 seconds or less? Yeah. Uh, subscribe to the show wherever you listen, rate us on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser, support us on Patreon. Our cash app is in the show notes. Subscribe to the newsletter and rate the episode. All right, yeah, that, that sounds and good share to share the episode. I guess we should let them get back to it then. Mm-hmm. All right, y'all enjoy. I, I had a couple follow-ups. I, I'll, I'll just do one for now so, so TJ can do his part. Um, could you could you just give us like a really specific example of like what, what you think might be the most clear parallel between Genesis 1 and Egyptian mythology? Sure. So <clears throat> there are lots of parallels, but let me give you the thing that is probably the most significant to me. Um, as I think about why I see Genesis as being influenced in its language, and I, and I think that's a really important distinction to make, and I'll come back to that if we have, we need to have time for that one, um, because I think that's a really difficult one for for us as modern Westerners to grasp. But um, so if you think through the order of creation and you think through the sorts of things that are happening in Genesis one, there are some surprises that we have um, just from our perspective, uh, things like dividing the waters from the waters. How, what does that mean? And what, do you, what does it mean to have waters above the heavens and waters below the heavens? And yet that's very much part of Egyptian understanding. Um, how do we how do we visualize that? How do we put that into our physics or our, our, our uh, astrology, astronomy and uh, what's going on with our perspective of the heavens and the earth? And it, it doesn't work very well. Um, however, it works really well if if you have an Egyptian mindset. But the probably the biggest one is um, the the number and order of events. So as we go through Genesis one, it starts with this formless void, darkness and deep. Uh, We have the spirit of God hovering over the surface of the waters. You have creation by command. He spoke and it happened. You've got light created. You've got water separated to form an atmosphere. You've got this separation of the land from the waters. And then the sun is created. And then the fish, birds and animals are created. And then you've got man created out of, uh, out of clay, by the way. And you have, at the end of all of this, the God rests. God rests in Genesis 2, 1 to 3, but you also have the God resting in Egypt as well. So all of those things are in the same order uh, with the same questions that we might have, but different in their world. And, uh, and it's, it's the same. So that to me is significant. It's a, just a tremendous connection between Genesis 1 and Egypt, not to say, and, and uh, folks have asked me about this, but I'm not, I'm not suggesting that Moses is simply borrowing the Egyptian creation account, because that's <laughs> not it at all. And, and the reason it's not is because it's so radically theologically different. But I would say he is using the language that they understand in order to teach the concepts they don't understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're not accusing them of plagiarism or anything. Right. And uh, I think it's important to acknowledge just how long Egypt had to spread out that creation myth. 
because Egypt, uh, as most of us think of it, existed for thousands of years. Uh, the current year, 2021, is closer to Cleopatra's death uh, than it is to the day the pyramids were finished. Uh, just hmm. for some context. So they had plenty of time to muddle those up and mix those around and spread those out and lose them. But they've held out pretty well, all things considered. Uh, But uh, how does the view represented in your book compare to a more traditional stance on the creation story? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, if by traditional stance you mean young earth creationism, which is probably the most traditional in some ways, um, although there have been some old earth creationists for a very long time as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I do not believe Genesis one is trying to teach us how God created. So it's, he's not trying to say, I, I do not see Genesis one as giving us seven literal 24 hour consecutive days. Um, and I argue for that with a lot of a uh, lot of different things, but um, there are a number of clues in the text that that's not what he's trying to accomplish with it. That it's it's much more of a theological construct. Uh, so yes, I do see figurative language there. It's interesting because I think probably everyone would say there's figurative language in Genesis one. Um, if you say God spoke, and yet you affirm that God did not have a corporal body. And in fact, that there was nothing in existence to carry sound waves, then what is speaking? It's not the same as what I'm doing at the moment. Uh, there's not air moving over a larynx and gums and tongue and teeth, et cetera, mm-hmm. to form sound waves to, to make speech as we know it. So, so that's a figure of speech. And there are many more figures of speech in Genesis 1. I recognize that uh, some folks would say, but it's narrative and it can't be figurative. And the trouble with that is that um, there's lots of figure, figurative language in lots of narratives. So it's not simply poetry. The other problem with that is that scholars have argued for a very long time over what the actual genre of Genesis 1 is. And while it is uh, configured very much like narrative in some ways, it's also has a lot of uh, interesting correlations to some sorts of poetry. So there is... Uh, a significant argument over that, but that's a, that's a side question. Um, the, so I see this as, as broadly figurative, not, um, not figurative in the sense of God didn't create. That's not it at all, but more figurative in the sense of how God is telling us about his creation. And an example that I think is helpful for us is when we look at how we talk about our world we don't always talk about our world in terms of um, concrete and only very woodenly literal things. So I don't know if you guys saw the sunrise this morning. I did. It was beautiful. Um, but you also know that that's a figure of speech, correct? Because the sun doesn't rise. Right. The earth rotates and we see the uh, we see the rays as they creep over the, the horizon because of the rotation of the earth. So. Um, that figure of speech is one that we use, and yet we think nothing of it. Um, Jesus even used that. He makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. But he didn't ever stop and say, hey, you guys know that sun doesn't really rise, right? 
<laughs> didn't say that. Um, but he used a figure of speech to communicate. He used their understanding of language to communicate. And that's what I would say God is doing here as well. Um, had a very interesting conversation with Vern Poitras. You may have, have heard of him, but, uh, he was, he was uh, challenging some of my thinking as well. And it was really helpful because, um, as we worked it through and as we talked about what God is doing in Genesis one, um, it is not that God is affirming a wrong perspective on the universe. He's not taking wrong science and saying, that's right. That's not it at all. He is using language which many in their world would have also recognized as figurative as well. And he is using that figurative language to communicate truths about who he is and how he how he created, not, not the nuts and bolts of creation, but that he is creator and he's soul creator and he's outside of the universe, et cetera, things that their gods were not. So that being said, um, many things such as a week is a creative, it is, it is a creative figurative expression that's used in a lot of literature outside of scripture as well as within scripture. Um, so there's, there are reasons that God would use these figurative expressions and language um, acts, but he is still communicating a very real truth about his creation. So um, as I worked it through and tried to express it, I was trying to communicate that Genesis 1 really is not arguing either for an old earth or a young earth. It's simply arguing that God created and he's not trying to say a particular chronology of when that was. So I'm happy allowing um, other disciplines, science in particular, to weigh in on the age of the earth, whether it's archaeology or paleontology or whatever, because I'm not convinced that Genesis 1 was intending to communicate that. Rather, it was taking the language that Israel understood coming out of Egypt to teach them who God is, who the creator is, how they relate to him, what that means. And yeah, certainly creation, the creation story has implications for history and for truth. But if God isn't intending to say a particular thing, then I can't read it into it. I have to understand what God intended and how it would have been communicated. Right. I'm starting to think he's trying to lead into my next question. So um, <laughs> seems to be pretty good at that. Um, <laughs> um, and, and but before we move on, though, I, I do want to mention um, you guys, whether you agree with his stance or not, should absolutely pick up the book um, in the beginning. We misunderstood um, some of the details they go through on how the comparisons are between Genesis one and Egyptian things really makes you think about what God's trying to say. And whether you agree with their opinion about the age of the earth or any of that, it really makes you think. And, and for me, it's a form of worship to be like, oh, wow, that that says something about God's character. And it's it's really inspiring. Um, May I make a big comment there? And absolutely. maybe you're going to get to this anyway. <laughs> but uh, if we're going to understand scripture as God intended it, we have to understand something about the context in which it was communicated. And language has a context. Um, all of us understand that the Old Testament, Genesis 1 in particular, was not written in 21st century English. It wasn't written recently to us 
in our world with our mindset, with our presuppositions, uh, with our understanding of the universe, etc. It was written to an ancient audience in an ancient context, in an ancient language. And we have good translations of that, but that doesn't mean we necessarily can easily put ourselves back into the mindset of the ancient audience and understand what they, what they heard. But the more we understand their world, which is understood both by the documents that we have, as well as by some of the other um, information, archaeology, etc., we are going to better understand what is happening in the text as we see those things that are very similar to put together. So understanding the context, regardless of what you end up with in your position, um, whether you want to end up with a, a literal 24-hour creationism or something else, whether you want a young earth or an old earth or, or anything else, um, you need to understand the context as well as you can and understand the implications of what those terms would have meant for the original audience, how they would have understood it. What would they have heard? What would they have thought as they're listening to this? Would they have thought, oh, wow, I've never heard of creation like that before? Or would they have thought, <laughs> okay, I understand creation, but who is this God? What's this all about? So understanding what they're thinking as best as we can is really important if we're going to understand the the authorial intent of scripture as it was originally given by God through Moses to Israel as they're coming out of Egypt. Yeah. It would be uh, really nice to get a re-release, you know, just a, a revised first edition, just divine inspire some poor dude working in a, in a newspaper factory and run off a few thousand more new prints in modern context, but that's just not going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Unless it does, um, which <laughs> that would be nice, um, which to just kind of prove what he's talking about. Um, when we had uh, Dr. Beck and Dr. Link on two weeks ago now, um, Dr. Link mentioned some of the context behind just the very first word of Genesis one that uh, we interpret as in the beginning and how it can be interpreted a couple of different ways. Um, you guys should absolutely listen to that episode. Um, but it's powerful stuff to think of regardless of where you're coming from. Um, which is the next question. Why is contact? Why does context matter? Um, but more specifically, you know, um, we, we, we like to represent as many different parts of the church as we can that way we can call ourselves the whole church without feeling bad about it. Um, so <laughs> we've had a lot of people who are a little bit more liberal in their theology and a little bit, uh, you know, whatever. Um, a lot of people who are more literalist, they'll say we should be able to read the Bible and just take it at face value. Like, why wouldn't God just say it in a way that I would understand? Um, what do you say to people with that kind of stance when they question you about this? Have you ever read Beowulf? Yes. God, it's a, yeah, it's great. I lent my copy it's, to a friend, but I should go get it. So, or um, even Shakespeare. And if you're reading it, how easy is that to read? Well, I have the Tolkien translation, so it's not that bad. <laughs> uh, mine is actually the Old English Next to a, oh. a modernized Shakespearean translation, the same page. I was say, you need an interpreter. And, and you do, don't you? you? You need somebody to help you with it. So did God write it in a way that we can understand it? If you're the original audience, absolutely. Would they have gotten it immediately? Yes. Are there things there that they might not have gotten immediately? Probably. I mean, as we think about scripture even today, and we listen to what God has said through Paul or through Peter or through Jesus, 
or through the prophets or whatever, we realize that it, there's tremendous depth there. And yet, as uh, one scholar says, um, it's, it's foolproof because the main message is still clear, even if we miss some of the details. But on the other hand, uh, those details can be challenging when we don't get the idea. And, and that's even true today. So um, my wife and I were talking just the other day. In fact, I think it was yesterday. And, and we were, it was hot. It was 90 and we were working. And, uh, and somehow the idea of sweating like a pig came up. And I actually <laughs> use that in my book because sweating like a pig, pigs don't sweat. <laughs> and people, where did that, where did that figure of speech come from? Uh, well, actually it came from the iron industry, but all of that, she said that even in our language today, we sometimes miss the implications of things because we don't even understand um, necessarily where some of our words came from. And if we go back a few hundred years, it's changed. So if we're looking at something that was written uh, 3,000 years ago or more, um, we can imagine that we're going to have to have some help. And everybody has to have help because you're reading an English Bible, unless you're reading your Hebrew Bible, which is great. And uh, I'll come read with you. That'd be terrific. But uh, if if you're reading your English Bible, you have help. So already um, that argument of why didn't God just write it so that I could get it is a bit of a problem because I have to have somebody translate it for me. But even in translation, that translator has to make choices as to what that word means because a word doesn't mean just a single thing. And so you have to decide which one it means in this context and choose the one that's going to best communicate the implications of it. So Which, um, all of us, we have to recognize that we're not in that context anymore. And so we need help. Oh, yeah. Which, uh, <laughs> for those of you who don't know, the Bible is actually filled with puns. And you don't get any of them in English or very few of them. It's pretty sad. And even when they are explained to you, you don't necessarily understand them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and it's like a good joke. By the time you really dig in and get it, you're like, man, it's, yeah, just, it's yeah. just not funny anymore. This would have been funny yeah, three, three hours ago. Yeah. <laughs> but so uh, couldn't expressing views like this get in the way of unity? Uh, why is it worth it to debate such controversial subjects? It's worth it because um, it matters. I think there are several reasons why it matters. Uh, for one thing, for me, the age of the earth is not a life or death issue. It's huh. just not. Um, and probably apart from a friend's uh, challenge, I'm not sure that that would have been the first book I would have written. Um, huh. However, it has become very important for, for some over others because of the way they perceive the issue. Um, it is true that the way we understand our job as interpreters and what interpretation means and what our hermeneutic is, for example, um, does impact how we understand scripture. And so for some, I've talked to folks who would say my hermeneutic requires that I believe this is a seven, 24 hour period, six day literal creation account. And so therefore, if you don't believe that, then you have the wrong hermeneutic and you're not going to understand scripture. And if you are consistent, you're going to be a heretic. 
And, and I've heard that. Um, I disagree with that on a couple of levels, but uh, number one, I disagree with the idea of the hermeneutic because the hermeneutic has to recognize context. And, and I'm not sure anybody that wouldn't say we'd have to recognize context. What that means and how I deal with context is really the issue. So it, it may be more splitting hairs than people want to admit. The second part of that is that if I'm going to understand scripture as the original audience understood it, if I'm going to, as it was intended for them to understand it, at least, I'm not sure they always did understand it, but <laughs> as it was intended for them to understand, um, then I have to, to the best of my ability, put myself back in their sandals and, and, uh, Certainly, the best way would be to read it in its original form, but even then, I have to understand uh, what those words meant because they change over time. Going back to my Beowulf illustration, the same word from Beowulf doesn't mean the same thing today. So, charity, even from King James to today, is not now we chance it is love. Um, we don't see charity as love at all, hardly today. So, Words change over time. So a word in Israel's context, uh, depending on when you're going to talk about the Exodus, if you're going to early date of the Exodus, you're going to talk about 1450 BC. Uh, a Hebrew word in 1450 BC is going to have a very different meaning than, or it could, it ne doesn't necessarily, but it could have a very different meaning than it would a thousand years later uh, mm. at the end of the old Testament. So if you're later date of the Exodus, it's not that much different because we're still talking about, you know, 1250 or 1220 or whatever they're going to decide on for that. So, um, okay. so anyway, words change. We do, we need to recognize that we need to understand that. And, and we need to do the best we can to understand scripture. So I need to debate these things because I need to understand scripture, but I also need to recognize that some of these debates are much less important than others in an eternal perspective and mm -hmm. have grace and charity um, <laughs> and love one another uh, so that I understand both what they are trying to express, what the other is trying to express, but also understand the reasons why they are presenting or seeing scripture in the way they are. So I think the debate has multiple um, benefits as long as we recognize that uh, this is an intramural debate. This is a debate among those who believe Scripture is valid, authoritative, inerrant. Now, that certainly there are others as well, but uh, for those of us who truly believe in Scripture, we need to recognize that we're brothers and we're trying to understand it as well as we possibly can, because we each have responsibility before God to understand his word and to respond to it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, see, this is, this is a silly side note. And then I have an, an actual, just a fun fact uh, to go with that. Um, just, I, I, I know it's been a while, but I just want to point out that, uh, he did say, put myself in their sandals, and that was really funny. <laughs> Sorry, it, it was just in the middle of a really serious, like, talk. So I was like, man, I feel like I can't laugh. That, that's pretty funny. Um, Yeah, and, and the other one, just more interesting, and it's a whole other can of worms, so we're not going to get into it. But just to let our listeners know, um, if you haven't looked into it, uh, a lot of stuff like in Genesis, especially like Genesis 1, what we have, like, 
of our, you know, quote, original copies, a lot of them are fragments. It's not like we have the whole book of Genesis all from the same date. A lot of it, when we get to that older stuff, is it's weird like that. And that's where Genesis 1, a lot of the older copies we have are almost in a different type of Hebrew, which is even more confusing, which is reminded me, your Beowulf reminded me of that. And I was like, yeah, yeah, some of this is uh, a lot more complicated than people, some people know. <laughs> uh, anyway, so that being said, we're going to start winding down. And the one question we like to ask everybody before we wrap up is just, if you had to give our listeners a single tangible action, um, something that, you know, they stop listening to us talk and they could just do it. Uh, what's something that they could do that would help maintain church unity? Listen. True. I, I think it is being quick to listen, slow to speak. Um, understanding the ideas, understanding the positions, understanding the reasons for those ideas and positions and, and the presuppositions that are going with them, not not presuming and assuming that you know what their presuppositions are, not not expecting that you can tell them why they're saying what they're saying, but actually listening to the uh, to the reasons that they're giving and listening to the heart behind it. Yeah, that's a good. That's a good word to preach. So, uh, what do you think would happen if uh, people just started listening? We'd probably understand one another a little better, and hopefully, we <laughs> would uh, maybe realize that we might agree on more than we recognize. Right. Yeah. We've uh, nice. we've gone over that a few times on the show over the past <laughs> couple years, where we can be saying the same thing but arguing about it because. We aren't hearing what each other is saying. We aren't taking the time to understand what we mean. So everyone give that a shot for sure. Uh, just listen. Try to sieve out any more important information in uh, someone's uh, speakings. But uh, yeah. one more thing we'd like to do uh, before we get to the outro is our God Moment segment. Uh, it's just we talk about a moment in our lives recently where we saw God, whether it be a challenge or a blessing. Or a moment of worship, and uh, I like to make Josh go first. Uh, it gives us plenty of time. It's the main reason. Well, so I had a, a drastic turn of events where last week I had a hard time coming up with something, and this week I'm having a hard time fiddling it down to one. Um, so I won't. That that's what I'll do. I just won't fiddle it down to one. Um, so I I got to work uh, camp Camp Agape. We did a bonus episode about it once. Uh, it's how me and TJ met. Very special place to both of us. Um, I got to work it over the weekend and one of the kids who goes to my church was actually my ring bearer. Um, he attended for the first time ever and I just have a special place in my heart for him. So he won honor camper. He had a great time. He looked at me his last day and he said, Josh, this was the three best days of my life. And that just, it really touched my soul to see that and to hear that from him. Um, and then this little guy here, Happened immediately after I got home from camp, and uh, he's been a huge blessing. Um, he's having a hard time sitting still right now, but he did pretty good for the episode, and so far he's obeying a lot better than a nine-week puppy should. So that's he's a blessing. A good boy. Copper's yeah. a good boy. Uh, my God moment uh, is going to be uh, not about hockey. Uh, Could have been. Stay keep, on your toes, keep waiting on it. audience it's actually members. Been a while. But... Uh, it is about the fact that I have a group of friends 
that I can have theological discussions with. Uh, we were out at dinner last night and we were talking about whatever, uh, reading, watching shows that we all like. Uh, and then we started talking about Genesis just cause nice. Yeah. Uh, friend stone, big fan of the podcast brought up Melchizedek and, you know, I didn't have any answers for him because the Bible barely does, but uh, it's nice <laughs> to have that conversation with people you're friends with. It's, it's a, I'm blessed with that opportunity. So, uh, yeah. Dr. Soden, do you have a, a, a God one for us? Yeah. I have the uh, privilege of teaching scripture all the time, which is amazing. Um, it's, uh, it's a great occupation. And I think for me, uh, this past weekend, actually, um, Friday night and Saturday, I had a, a residency for a grad class, um, seminary class, and just seeing God's word connect with students and seeing some of the lights turn on is really exciting. It's fun to see um, that impact and uh, that aha moment of, wow, look at what God is saying. Look at what God is doing. And recognizing the the relevance of his word from the beginning to today. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Uh, really good. Uh, thank you so much for your time, Doctor Soden, and uh, thank you for listening. We've so enjoyed having you here. Uh, if you enjoyed the episode, please consider sharing with a friend. Post on your social media. Bash on it on your social media. No such thing as bad press. Uh, and thank you for listening. And join us next week. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Dr. Soden, where can people go to find you and um, maybe read more of your books or anything like that? Yeah, so the only actual book I have is that one. Um, I'm working today on a commentary on Genesis that uh, is going to be out sometime. It's with Kriegel's k series. So it should okay. be done in about a year. And then uh, hopefully that will be coming online. Um, I do have a few things online, actually, if you're interested. Um, I, I did put out a few uh, survey videos um, on YouTube, but uh, mostly um, that's pretty much it. So in the beginning, we misunderstood is probably the, the only hardcover. <laughs> so uh, y'all go check that out. And um, some of y'all will probably be waiting with anticipation with me. For that uh, Genesis commentary. I'm looking forward to that one. I'm looking forward to it being done. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, here, you're writing the book's a lot of work. It is. It's good, though. Great. Yeah, so um, some future guests. Uh, we have best-selling author Frank Viola, who's going to be joining us to talk about his new book, Hang On, Let Go, What to Do When Your Dreams Are Shattered and Life is Falling Apart. Right. Uh, we also have Christian Ashley, creative writer. Uh, return guests, uh, Professor Chris Moreland and Sister Rose of the Catholic Campus Ministries at UNCW. And of course, at the end of season one, we will have Francis Chan. Yeah, Francis Chan doesn't know, though. Everybody else knows. Yeah. Francis Chan is unaware. Uh, as soon as that's rectified, we will end season one. But I did confirm Dr. Russell Moore in January, so that's pretty exciting. Right. Uh, but yeah. once again, thank you so much for listening. We enjoy having you here and come back next week. We'd love to have you.